Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. We bring together the latest research in linguistics, language acquisition, and biblical studies to better understand the biblical languages and ultimately the biblical text. As always, this episode is brought to you by Biblingo, the premier solution for learning, maintaining, and enjoying the biblical languages. Visit biblingo.org to learn more and start your 10-day free trial. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast. Today, we are starting a brand new series on the topic of reading fluency. And we have a very special guest to help us kick off this series, Dr. Marianne Wolf. Marianne Wolf is a scholar, a teacher, and an advocate for children and literacy around the world. She is the director for the Center of Dyslexia, Diverse Learners, and Social Justice at the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. Previously, she was the director of the Center for Reading and Language Research in the Elliott Pearson Department of Child Study and Human Development at Tufts University. She's the author of more than 160 scientific articles. She designed the RAVE-O Reading Intervention for Children and Dyslexia, and she co-authored the RAN-RAS Naming Speed Tests, a major predictor of dyslexia across all languages. At a more popular level, she's the author of Proust and the Squid, the Story and Science of the Reading Brain, Dyslexia, Fluency, and the Brain, Tales of Literacy for the 21st Century, and most recently, Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. So as you may be able to tell from all that, Marianne Wolf's focus is primarily on what happens in our brains as we read. And while her focus is primarily on reading in the L1, or first language, uh, focusing on literacy, specifically in children, uh, her research is highly relevant to anyone wanting to learn a second language, such as the biblical languages. And that's because what happens in our brain as we read our first language is not all that different than what happens in our brain when we read a second language. A world-renowned second language acquisition scholar, William Grabe, says that, quote, the actual underlying cognitive processes involved in L1 and L2 reading are generally the same. And many results of research on component skills that support reading comprehension will likely apply across both L1 and L2 learner groups, end quote. So, like I said, Dr. Marianne Wolf has incredible insight into what goes on in our brains as we read, and those insights are applicable for both reading in the L1 or first language and reading in the L2 or second language. Now, in this episode, we are primarily unpacking one of those scientific articles that Marianne Wolf has co-authored called Reading Fluency and Its Intervention. And at some point in this interview, I, uh, I mentioned that they offer a definition of reading fluency in the article. And I, at that point in the interview, I say, let's not give the definition now. We'll give it later because it's pretty long and complex. And I think we should unpack some ideas before we get to the definition. Well, I um, forgot to ever come back to the definition. And so I never provide it in the episode. So um, 
I'm going to actually go ahead and read it now, which is ironic because the reason I never ended up reading it in the episode is because I thought we needed to <laughs> unpack some ideas first. So I'm going to go against that and read it now before we have unpacked any ideas. Uh, but hopefully it can kind of whet your appetite for the episode, knowing that all these things that may not make sense as I read it now uh, will make sense by the end of the episode because Marianne Wolf does a wonderful job unpacking all of this. So, so uh, this is what they say about reading fluency in their article. Quote, in its beginnings, reading fluency is the product of the initial development of accuracy and the subsequent development of automaticity and underlying sublexical processes, lexical processes, and their integration in single-word reading and connected text. These include perceptual, phonological, orthographic, and morphological processes at the letter, letter pattern, and word levels, as well as semantic and syntactic processes at the word level and connected text level. After it is fully developed, reading fluency refers to a level of accuracy and rate where decoding is relatively effortless, where oral reading is smooth and accurate with correct prosody, and where attention can be allocated to comprehension, end quote. Now, like I said, there's a lot going on there. Uh, a lot of it might not make sense to you. Maybe, maybe a lot of it does. But uh, what you can take away from that for now is that um, when we are reading, there is quite a lot going on in our brain. And it's really an incredible thing that we're able to perform all of these cognitive processes um, simultaneously and rapidly and, and all that kind of stuff in order to understand a text. And so uh, the question at hand for us is how can we do what that, that definition of reading fluency uh, describes? How can we do all of that in our brain when reading biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew? And I think Marianne Wolf um, provides a lot of insight toward that end. So without further ado, my interview with Dr. Marianne Wolf. I'm Nick Mesmer, your host for this episode, and I'm very excited to be here with Dr. Marianne Wolf to talk about the reading brain, reading fluency, deep reading, and more. Welcome to the show, Marianne. It's a pleasure. Um, so I do want to cover a lot of ground, um, particularly with the more theoretical, technical side of your work um, regarding what is going on in our brains when we read. But before we dive into that, and can you share very briefly what inspired you to pursue this work? Certainly. Um, for those of you who've read some of my work, you know this, but it still, it still is um, an absolute gift to me that I had an epiphany while transitioning, I thought, from an English, a master's in English literature to a PhD in comparative lit with poetry of Rilke as my So that's what I thought I was doing, but I needed to take um, about a year off or more to do a, a Peace Corps-like teaching um, time. And I ended up by mistake, I was, in, I was headed towards a Native American reservation in North Dakota, and at the last minute, they said, no, we're sending you to rural Hawaii. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to this moment, I'm laughing because I thought, oh, my 
God, that's nobody's gonna feel that I'm, you know, giving up any part of my life for, you know, yeah. political <laughs> reasons. You know, this is no cachet at all until I got there. And then I had such uh, the, the word epiphany is really what happened. I never knew the kind of poverty that was there with people truly indentured to plantations. Um, mm -hmm. It's not as bad now as it was, but these were pineapple and sugar plantations and people were never going to leave. And their children had a school that was failing and a group of us from the mainland were to come and take over. And that experience, just literally, just as you're saying, changed my life. I, it's not so much that I left literature, I left literature during the day and realized that I had to figure out how in the world these children could become as as much as i could do in one or two years literate so functional literacy so that they could finish school if possible go to high school and college but at the minimum be able to read enough that they would not be indentured like their parents and so it just became my life's mission to figure out how best are we going to teach children to read. I did a miserable job. When people talk to me about, oh, how, what's the story of whatever success I've ever had? I said, uh, it begins in failure. It's punctuated by failure. Um, it's getting up when you realize you don't know something and you go after it. And so after that experience, I went to what was um, then called the Harvard Reading Lab. And I became very involved in the study of the human brain as it reads. Um, and from then on, my goal in life, which continues to be unfinished <laughs> and unmet, is to, in fact, um, figure out as much as we possibly can how the brain moves from not having a single gene for reading and basically has to establish a new circuit for a cognitive invention like reading. So reading is just not in us. It is not genetically programmed. Um, and I wanted to figure out what are the design principles in the human brain that allow us to basically do what Pascal always said, that there's no nothing new under the surf, there's only rearrangement. Well, that's the brain principle. It's not that, that, that you know, you suddenly have a new gene. No, no, no. You are rearranging the parts that were genetically programmed, that is language and vision, cognition and affect and motor ex experiences. So from that point on, I have really pursued um, like the wild duck, <laughs> like Ibsen's wild duck going into the weeds mm -hmm. uh, of neuroscience, cogn cognitive neuroscience, always, always with the goal of applying that, translating that for the world to understand two things. One, if we do not have literate beings, their full potential by and large will not be met. Mm -hmm. Even though you can be an, a non-literate person like Socrates, 
and be very intelligent in this age not to be literate is not to have the possibilities that should be open to you so number one basic human right number two the knowledge that we have about how the brain develops reading helps us teach every child whether the child has dyslexia or other forms of unusual or different brain organizations or because of poverty like my children in rural Hawaii and then later in, in inner city schools, we need to have that knowledge given to our teachers and it is still not happening. Um, mm -hmm. We're doing a much better job. What is called the science of reading and what I call the neuroscience of reading is becoming much more popular um, because of really great journalism like Emily Hanford, great schol scholars and people who write books, people who talk to teachers, people who try to change how schools of education work. Um, everybody has a part to play in making sure every child can learn to read. And COVID has shown mm -hmm. us that we are way behind that goal. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And as I said, I think it's very inspiring. Your passion for helping children and for justice comes through in your writing, as does your background in literature, um, especially your uh, your more popular level books like Reader Come Home. Um, just the way you're able to tie in all these quotes um, from different literature was really um, amazing and enjoyable. So, um, <clears throat> well, with that, um, we will dive into kind of the science that you're talking about, as I do think it's very um, applicable also in a diff very different way, um, but to uh, what we talk about and do, which is reading ancient languages, specifically the biblical languages. So let's talk a little bit about the science of reading fluency. Um, so the more kind of academic article um, that will be talking about uh, is called Reading Fluency and Its Intervention. Um, and you do give kind of a, you give a definition of reading fluency in that article. Um, I wanna save that for later because it's quite a long and technical definition. So I wanna- I really want that. <laughs> right, so I wanna build our way up to it. So um, to start off, can you give us an idea of some, uh, traditional understandings of reading fluency and what it is um, in your field? Um, the traditional one is unfortunately very impoverished. It's basically what is the, the, the speed of, of an accurate decoding of mm -hmm. a word or um, of connected text. And that is just impoverished. <laughs> mm -hmm. So for me, fluency, mm -hmm. um, and here's where I will build up what you wish, um, fluency is the composite of all these underlying processes which contribute to the speed and accuracy of decoding a word and understanding it. What has been missing um, is that the thought is that if you just get faster, you are becoming more fluent. Well, fluency is a bridge. It is a bridge, a living bridge, a physical bridge, because it's really the speed of connections in the brain, connections of all its parts, but the emphasis should be on the connection of all its parts. Mm -hmm. 
And that's really missing from how people think about fluency. So one of the things that we try to do in that article and an earliest article was with uh, my Israeli colleague, uh, uh, Tommy Katsir, um, we really looked at what are all the underlying processes. And of course, everybody thinks visual. Well, visual is just one piece, very important piece. But fluency requires um, that orthographic or representation, let's say, of a Hebrew character or mm -hmm. any, any, any letter or any character. Uh, it has to be represented in that visual area. But that's just the beginning. And mm -hmm. a, a lot of people actually stop there. They think the faster you recognize it, the faster you will decode it. That's the beginning. The visual word form area in the brain is making over time like a storehouse. Um, these characters would have to be literally and physically represented to learn. And mm -hmm. the more you are exposed, and this is part of fluency, the more you are exposed, the stronger the representation. Mm -hmm. So when people um, in reading, for example, uh, um, use a, a kind of a mindless term, drill and kill, mm -hmm. they, they aren't understanding that the brain needs multiple exposures. So that's not drill and kill, that's giving enough exposures to represent. Now that's the beginning, but then that has to be connected to the sound representation, the phoneme, which gives us the correspondence rules between a given character and its sound. So that those are two pieces. The pieces that most people neglect, however, are the ones underlying the other connections that aid fluency. That is vocabulary. And I know when just even from the notes that you've sent me that there is always going to be um, an emphasis on vocabulary and grammar, rightly so. And I would say it's very important. I, I would say only 10% of teachers really know this um, when they teach reading English, that mm -hmm. fluency is aided by not, not only the visual and the phonemic, but very importantly, by the knowledge of the word and its associations, including its grammatical uses. So mm -hmm. the grammatical use, especially when we talk about fluency for connected text, mm -hmm. plays a very important role. It plays a mm -hmm. less, uh, if, if you will, a, a less obvious role in a single word but most of your work and mine is on connected text. Mm -hmm. So fluency has to have that grammatical um, uh, knowledge added to the vocabulary, added to the phoneme and the, the visual. And then you add, which is especially important in Hebrew, the morpheme, the morphological knowledge in Hebrew is almost more important than the other than in other languages mm -hmm. english has been misrepresented as a phone basically a phonemic language 
Mm -hmm. It is also a morpho phonemic language. Our roots are the basis for many a spelling pattern that might mm -hmm. seem obscure or archaic. Um, I had the great pleasure <laughs> and effort of studying with both Noam and Carol Chomsky, and they both used the example muscle to illustrate how the C is, you know, it's useless. Why is it there? Well, it's there because when you look at the root system of the morphemes, it connects it to muscular, musculature, mm -hmm. etc., mm -hmm. where it was essential. So morphology is very important to orthographic spelling patterns. And this is something that in your study of Greek and uh, especially Hebrew, you you know more than most people why morphemes are so important. Yeah. So mm -hmm. fluency requires all these. And then for connected text, it is aided also by prosody. Interestingly mm -hmm. enough, a lot of people emphasize prosody more than semantics and grammatical and morphological knowledge. It's it's in there, but it is not, it should not be the, the next thing you do after mm -hmm. what a lot of people do is what's called repeated reading. You read mm -hmm. the same passage over and over again. Well, that is um, one intervention. The interventions need to go after all of these parts and very importantly, connect them. Yeah, no, that that's extremely helpful. Um, it's interesting that you talked about how um, at least from your side of things, there's often a heavy emphasis on the orthographic and phonemic um, side of things. And then it kind of stops before the vocab and grammar and morphemes. In our field, it's the exact opposite. It, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people would struggle to read a Greek or Hebrew text. Like people who have completed a couple semesters of these languages will struggle to be able to read a text out loud because they just haven't focused on yes the sound those sorts of things yeah exactly um and the i think the one of the part of the reason that's the case is um <clears throat> most people aren't interested in learning to speak or co have conversations in these languages not too um, many people could talk <clears throat> to them yeah yeah there are there are people who can though um so yeah, so let's let's get back to to your understanding of reading fluency. So you talked about your a definition that's more component based, and you walked us through some of uh, the components. You also say suggest that we need a definition that is developmental. Can you unpack exactly what you mean by that? Um, I wish I had my diagram in front of me to show you, but um, the reality is that you want to emphasize certain things more over time. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, it will depend on the individual. Now, you and I have different audiences. For me, the children's um, development is what I am, you know, bent set on, on helping. And so for some, developmentally, they come especially after COVID, especially if they are in some of the poverty stricken communities that we know are in our own backyards, they are gonna need more emphasis on semantics mm -hmm. and grammar than others. 
They are, they, that's going to be really, really important. Um, and then that becomes more, if you will, modulated over time as they become more and more, if you will, fluent comprehend readers. They'll still need it, mm -hmm. but depending on where they are when they begin, they re we really have to figure out. And, and when I say figure out, I mean uh, not diagnose, but assess, screen for those component parts. How do they know their letters? How well do they know their phonemes? How, how is their language uh, vocabulary developing? Do they have a sense of, of the grammar of that language that they have to read? Because they often mm -hmm. are coming from a different language. So all these things are going to be changing over time. And we have to be um, vigilantly monitoring what they need developmentally. Mm -hmm. And then at, as, as you, I think, know, because in my Reader Come Home, I, I quoted Alberto Mangel about how everything we read is cumulative. And it proceeds, I think he used the beautiful term, in geometric progression. And so it is. We, our vocabulary becomes more developed over time with what we read. So also is our grammatical complexity. But some mm -hmm. aspects of grammar are, especially from adults, implicitly known. Mm -hmm. So some aspects are developing and that refers more to the grammatical density or complexity that's involved uh, rather than you know um, parsing verbs or something you know conjugating mm -hmm. verbs so we we have different aspects that are developing over time yeah yeah that's very helpful um in terms of the components again that you shared um you kind of divide them up to some degree between what you refer to lower level processes and higher level processes. So lower level would be things like the orthographic and phonological awareness and things like that, um, among many other, and then many others. And then higher level would be things like comprehension, for example. Um, so can you, before we dive into specific processes, can you just talk a little bit about the relationship between lower level processes and higher level processes? Yeah. And I'm taking my jacket off, so you're going to see a physical <laughs> rendition of this diagram, <laughs> which is kind of embarrassing to do, but what the heck. So this, think of this as foundational skills. Let's make a box, okay? Foundational skills. Much, much has to happen. All these processes that are, you know, whether we call them letter, phoneme, all these processes, all the fluency related processes are developing. So this is foundational skills. At no time are there no comprehension, but comprehension is like this. It's coming in, you know, so when I, you know, instruct my teachers or whomever, or write even interventions, we still always have connected text, even if it's two word sentences, three mm -hmm. word sentences. But then over time, the foundational skills go like this, and the comprehension skills are taking over. So here's right. a developmental arc for mm -hmm. comprehension. And the comprehension skills are really what I call deep reading processes. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I think comprehension is a nice basket, 
but it for a cognitive you know to think cognitively about it is much more interesting but also more important so now the foundational skills if you notice they're still there right so and the fluency skills that are foundational have have transposed actually into more higher level kinds of semantic and grammatical um if you will processing but Mm -hmm. there's also and i'm sure this is true in hebrew it certainly is true in english the need for multisyllabic pattern knowledge that is increases now that that's a foundational skill letter pattern knowledge or Mm -hmm. character pattern knowledge is a foundational skill but it still exists and the more um if you will advanced you are you are encountering words you hadn't met before and you are applying these skills but in a multisyllabic so it in in a way they always exist for each other so I think one way you put it is, uh, well, a paraphrase is that um, the more automatic you become in the lower level processes, the more like effort you can um, put toward the higher level processes, allocate. I'm so glad you said that because um, when I talk about fluency, I am after automaticity of decoding. Mm -hmm. And as you become automatic, and when I mean automatic, I mean virtually right. automatic <clears throat> recognition. And that rec- that automaticity is aided by all this knowledge. It's aided by it. But as it becomes automatic, you then literally allocate all this, all this energy now goes into here. Right. So you now have almost, inst- it's almost like this. Yeah. And then this instantaneously gets what we would have ordinarily spent, especially if you're a first grader, you're spending Mm -hmm. millisecond after millisecond just decoding the darn word. All those are now devoted to understanding the word, the words, the context, and then uh, obviously as, as, as language becomes more abstract, the abstruse meanings, the levels of meaning, the perspective taking, all these deep reading processes, you have more time. You do not have time enough for deep reading if you are literally stuck here. Right, right. And and this is something you could, like, most people have probably experienced to some degree, or you can certainly see, um, yeah, when people are, are learning a second language, you can... You can read an entire text and by the end of it have no clue what happened because you're so focused on whether it be identifying words or, or thinking about the sounds, how to actually pronounce them, Right. Um, that by the end you're like, I have no clue. And you have to go back and kind of do it all again two or three times. That's yeah. right. And that's the problem of, of <clears throat> especially one form of dyslexia, which is like a fluency-based dyslexia, um, though most kids with dyslexia like 75 percent have some kind of fluency issue one group in particular has no phoning problems at all but it's just what you're saying they they can't read fast enough to get the meaning right right um so uh, i i want to talk a little bit more about some of the processes and components one of them you brought up is decoding and i want to talk about that one specifically just because decoding in my in our kind of field or circles is sometimes used pejoratively um 
to refer to really this phenomenon of you you have a Greek or Hebrew text and you just kind of have to struggle word by word to translate each word, almost like it's a code that you're deciphering. Um, and I know in your field, decoding means something very, very different. <laughs> so can, can, you, can you explain what decoding is? Decoding means how accurately you can recognize the word based on your knowledge of letters and sound correspondence rules, basically. Right, right. So, so being able to decode um, at the word level is one of those lower level processes. It's just a lower level process. It's, very, it's essential, mm -hmm. but it's a lower level. Great. Another one I'd love to talk about is retrieval. Um, can you talk about what retrieval is? The retrieval is, um, <laughs> since I wrote an entire dissertation on word retrieval, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> My kids always laugh, said, Mom, you've studied this for so long, so how do you do it? And I said, I've studied it for decades, and we still don't know exactly yeah. <laughs> why. Well, that's because it's a very complex set of systems and connections that are used in order to retrieve any single word. Now, if you are retrieving the word just to to pronounce it, mm -hmm. that's one one form of retrieval. But right. but by and large, retrieval is the sum of finding all finding a word or a set of words, but finding a word with all the knowledge that you have in your brain circuitry for it. So when you, when I retrieve, um, but I, I'm going to step back. I can retrieve something that's very simple. Like um, I can retrieve, I wish I could just show, I can retrieve this entity and I'll say, Nick, what, what is this? Uh, phone. Okay. Well, now, did you hesitate because you were going to say cell phone? Yes, actually. <laughs> I, I heard the pause, okay? Mm -hmm. And what you were doing, you literally went to, okay, here's the visual form, and then you had to find the what we would call semantic field for that word, and then you have to, so you have to connect the visual with the entity, the concept of the entity, and then you have to have the semantic phonemic and articulatory all that has to be coming into play as you then decide whether you're going to call it a cell phone or a phone if you had just said cell phone mm -hmm. <laughs> i would have been surprised because right. really by and large you 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 want to do it fast so you mm -hmm. got the one word now if i would test you on letters instead of a phone mm -hmm. you would do much faster Right. Because they are automatic. Right. And that's what your question, I assume, is really after. When yeah, you absolutely. retrieve the character, how automatic are you? Well, mm -hmm. it will depend on what the task is. Is it a right. verbal retrieval task? Is it an identification task? But the retrieval itself is a composite sum of all those processes 
leading you to whatever your purpose was. Yeah. But those letter retrieval tasks, <clears throat> they are the major predictor in Hebrew and Greek and German, Italian, Spanish, Chinese for reading performance. The character's retrieval speed, if it's automatic, is like a tiny circuit, like the big circuit. It's a smaller circuit, but it shows you how fast the brain connects the necessary parts to retrieve the word. So when people talk about word retrieval in aphasia, where there's you know some kind of damage uh, to the brain mm -hmm. in a particular way the first thing that goes awry is retrieval mm -hmm. because it has so many ways it can be impeded right i i think one of so thinking about retrieval in the broader context of taking a developmental and component-based um, definition of fluency is the idea that retrieval is one among many processes that you have to uh, work on to become fluent because <clears throat> so retrieval is pulling something from your memory, uh, you know, about whatever you're looking at. And um, that, so it's not enough to just quote unquote, know the thing. You have to also be able to retrieve the thing and coming um, to know it and absolutely. retrieving it are two different processes that That's have to right. be worked and they're on. Gonna re and again, it's <clears throat> the mode too of presentation, the mode of the task. Yeah. Because if I ask you to retrieve it in your mind, it's a lot faster because you haven't had to do a motoric activation. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, I think a, a, a interesting example perhaps of this is like when, when you have a word that's, we say, on the tip of your tongue. Um, it's like you know it, but you're having trouble retrieving it. Um, Absolutely. That, that was William, William James was one of the more beautiful, um, if you will, uh, descriptions of that. He called it the wraith of the name, the mm -hmm. wraith of the name. I thought that was perfect because yeah. that's exactly what's happening. You have ghosts. Yeah, of exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the wraith. You've got mm -hmm. all these little ghosts in your head, but you can't find it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I want to move on a little bit here, but just to give people, listeners an idea of these processes, you list throughout your article, a lot of them. And I just want to give people kind of a, an idea of the scope here. So I, these are just a bunch that I jotted down. So I'm kind of moving from lower level to higher level. So you have attention, visual perception, orthographic representation, auditory perception, phonological representation, phoneme awareness, short-term memory, lexical access, retrieval, semantic representation, <laughs> decoding, word identification, morphosyntactic knowledge, prosodic knowledge, um, connected text knowledge, comprehension. And then even beyond that, your executive function has to coordinate all these things. And then you also have anticipatory facilitation, which is kind of, a, I think the idea of like predicting what's going to come next and testing that Especially hypothesis. in a sentence <clears throat> that, right. that gives you a, a, a context. So you, you're narrowing, narrowing the search. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that was around yeah, 20 I mean, processes. You, you don't want to tell people all that. so Right. <laughs> well, I want to give people an idea because, like you said, from a developmental standpoint, it's important to identify where 
your deficits are. That's um, exactly correct. And a and, lot of and, things stop at attention. Yeah. And I also just want to mention, so your article deals with a lot of these things, but then your book, Reader Come Home, I think in the second chapter, you you give just an amazing, fun illustration of all these processes happening like a circus act, like a three-ring circus. And and I did, yeah, just to our listeners, you should really check it out because the amount of science that is packed into like a fun um, illustration is is just great. Um, Thank so, you. That took me yeah. a long time to figure out. <laughs> I love you know, it. My editor said, you how are you gonna how are you gonna make him she says do not do not write a chapter on the reading brain and stop them from reading the rest of the book i said just a minute just a minute if yeah. i don't give them this knowledge the rest of the book won't really make right. sense right no that was a great a great solution thank you, thank you. <laughs> so so with all of this the goal as we've said is to become automatic and lower level processing processes so we can allocate our effort and attention to higher level processes, particularly comprehension. And so with this, you, you kind of refer to those higher level processes as deep reading. Um, and so I'd love to know what exactly, how exactly would you describe deep reading and what are the key processes involved in that? Okay. Um, if, if you will... If <laughs> If you permit me another use of my arms, I'm gonna mm -hmm. I'm gonna say that reading deep reading is like our the brain is like it's this wheel. It's got all these different parts that are coming back and forth, feed forward, feed backward, and it it has to pull all this together at the end. So let's call this middle with all the spokes. It's going to be the sum of all these different processes, some of which are talking to each other, some of which are not. Right. Now, it begins with, and I, I'll try to be brief only because I know we're running out of time, yeah. but we need to think first about the background knowledge that we bring to bear. So mm -hmm. if we don't know what the words, let's just say circuit is, it doesn't matter the rest. So, but your background knowledge about what that circuit is then gives you the basis for analogy. Human beings are analogical creatures. And so the background knowledge is being um, compared to the new knowledge of text. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the first parts of, uh, if you will, of, of the, the hub, one of the first mm -hmm. spokes. But that also is connected to inference. Oh gosh, so I'm inferring that this is very similar to what I know, but it's more and I have to add. So I'm I'm accommodating to this knowledge and I'm assimilating to be a Piagetian here. So I'm doing both. But mm -hmm. that inference then becomes a, a piece of what, oh, then I can deduce or induce the next piece of knowledge. So these analogy, inference, deduction, induction skills, all of them, if you will, are playing a part with background knowledge. Now, mm -hmm. all this is taking time. These are milliseconds, milliseconds, milliseconds. And they are feed forward, feed back information. And 
if you if you want to think about your frontal lobes as as being partners in a dance that background knowledge and and all that inferential information is causing you to generate hypotheses and you're going back and forth with the with your analytic skills to say that sounds right that sounds true that's i can validate that i feel i can validate the truth of that or that is easily refutable or mm -hmm. i don't trust it so you're going back and forth with this cr these critical analytic skills so if you will in that in that all of that these spokes on this side let's call them the science spokes or more mm -hmm. the sherlock holmes spokes but then there are other spokes that are really beautiful in that they are the perception of beauty if you mm -hmm. will and they are they are listening to almost the poetry and they are seeing the imagery and they are collecting um information that is that is often sensorial mm -hmm. or it can even be motoric if if you th think about um uh, i use the example uh of annika renina when she leaps into the train track with her red bag on the platform and she's leaping we motorically activate Mm -hmm. The beauty of that imagery, that is really giving us extra, if you will, deep reading processes. Mm -hmm. But there's something else that fiction does in particular, though it can be anything, but fiction, I think, has a special place in it. And that is it lets us leave ourselves to take on the perspective of others mm -hmm. cognitively and affectively we begin to understand the thoughts like machiavelli and we begin to understand the feelings like tolstoy we are really two two or three forms of empathy one is more cognitive one is more active and we see this in the brain we are activating those beautiful perspective taking processes now when you put the perspective taking and the empathy and the the beauty and the critical analysis if you pull all that together you you have what is i would say the 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 penultimate not ultimate the penultimate heart of reading not the heart but the next step mm -hmm. it is combining all that so all the hubs come right there and then remember these are all milliseconds mm -hmm. then if you give your own best contemplative function you reach the ultimate heart which is why the first book i ever wrote was called proust and the squid the story in science of the reading brain because proust said at the heart of reading we leave the wisdom of the author behind to discover our own that's the ultimate the penultimate are all those deep reading processes the contemplative sanctuary in which we can reflect have insights and sometimes go beyond the author sometimes go beyond any thought we've ever had that's 
that is the deepest yeah. aspect of reading. Yeah, yeah. And just to, to wrap up, I, I think that is such a good um, word for our listeners. I think that most people who study Greek and Hebrew never have the chance to read it deeply in this way um, because they never develop reading fluency. They never develop automaticity with those lower level processes. So, right, it all builds. Uh, but I think most people who study Greek and Hebrew, that's exactly what they want. They want to be able to immerse themselves in in the text um, in that way. Um, and so this is a, just a great encouragement um, to that end. So um, thank you very much for that. Absolutely. Take care now. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Biblical Languages podcast brought to you by Biblingo. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. You can also follow Biblingo on social media to discuss the episode with us and other listeners. And don't forget to visit biblingo.org to start your 10-day free trial of Biblingo.